Welcome back to the second in our four-part series, Filmmaker Above Suspicion, Sex, Death and Politics in the Films of Elio Petri. So join me, Kat Ellinger, and my co-host Sam Deegan as we explore Petri's slick sci-fi The Tenth Victim, his tall existential crime thriller We Still Kill the Old Way, and his sex-fueled giallo A Quiet Place in the Country. Welcome back to the second episode in our Elio Petri retrospective. We had originally planned to do three episodes and after recording last week, it soon became apparent that three episodes wouldn't be enough. And that's my fault a little bit because I have to admit that I am obsessed with John Maria Volante and since he is in several of the upcoming films, I'm going to need a long time to talk about him. And I like feel... a long time. Uh, <laughs> And I feel like Jean-Marie Volante today. I feel absolutely <laughs> crazed. I'm going to start eating parts of my notes in a minute like he does in Citizen. I'm just going to chew them up because it's just too fucking exciting. It's just we've got some really, really good films today and in the, over the next couple of episodes. Um, and we also, we we started recording last week so we usually bulk record and then it was fireworks night here in the UK, which was perhaps quite fitting for Petri with all the explosions, but uh, um, sort of fireworks stopped play. So we're back again this weekend. To with hopefully... fewer explosions. Fewer explosions. <laughs> wow, I don't know. You'll be doing some explosions. <laughs> <laughs> Too right. So just begin before we begin with the main films as well, because we I don't know if we said this in the first episode, but Petri did some shorts uh, before he went into feature length films and none of those can be found. So I did mention when we covered um, A Quiet Place in the Country on one of our Art Jallo episodes that he did a Mondo documentary called Nudie Per Vivre in 1963. And I declared on that episode, because I thought this to be true, that that was seized by the authorities and no prints of it existed. And in the weird way that Daughters of Darkness speaks to the universe, <laughs> and it and it did this previously. Wonderful way. And the wonderful way, when I mentioned uh, Paul Selly's mania was missing or locked in a vault, it suddenly appeared on YouTube the next week. And now Nudie Per Vivre has appeared, but unfortunately we haven't been get, able to get hold of it in time for this episode but we do have some screen grabs we're going <laughs> to review because we're that fucking sad. <laughs> we're that dedicated, I think you mean. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and But I, I feel like if they were just regular sort of average screen grabs, it wouldn't be worth discussing. But because they're fucking nuts, I know, it I just can't makes wait. me want to see it. Well, we'll be watching it soon. It's just a shame the timing's a bit out, but it looks... It looks, just looks so crazy. It wasn't. It wasn't pure Petri. So it was a. It was a group effort, with weirdly another di- one of the other directors we featured in the Art Jallo episode as well was Guido Quest who did Death Laid an Egg, and um, I didn't know enough about the the film at that point. Only like a little bit that I'd read online that I didn't even know he was involved. So that was another revelation. Yeah, I. It's it's weird because. 
a lot of Italian directors and even people like Yangsho got involved in doing anthology films. And I mean, looking back on it, it was normal at the time, but looking back on it now, it just seems so weird and kind of, I guess, commercial. Like even Pasolini did it, but it just, it strikes me as odd that Petri would. Well, this one was actually, so the, it was actually credited as one director. It was actually credited as Elio Montesti, which is an amalgam of the three directors involved. So it was Elio Petri, Giuliano Montaldo and Guido Questi. So they were all as one person. Now, I believed, and this is, so part of the synopsis provided with this gives the information that I thought before. It was the, it's a mondo based on some form of eroticism or, I mean, you translated the title to nude for a living or or nude to live. So it looks like it's about erotic dancers maybe or strippers. Um, and the state were there's very, a lot happening there's a lot happening some weird horror aspects as well by the look of it which i'm i'd be interested to find out what those are about so it, it, it originally said and this is what i thought but i did research it a few a few years ago that the state had had seized the print and destroyed it but apparently it turned up in in the national film archive and was screened at some some um, screening in Rome. So it is at the um, or was it at the sixty sixth Venice International Film yeah. Festival showed it. So yeah, it was part of some sort of questy ret- retrospective at the Venice Film Festival. So we've got some interesting sort of scenes here. We've got a woman looking at a man in a coffin. Very Hammer horror, I think. Um, a woman who looks like she's brandishing a whip. Yeah, and the woman kneeling or leaning in the coffin has definitely a very sort of Jean Rollin looking nightgown on. Hmm. Um, A guy dancing with some Hawaiian women. They look like they're about to rip his clothes off. (laughs) Yeah, it's like he's wearing some sort of horrible ruffled shirt. At least that's how it looks from here. He looks Mexican and they look Hawaiian, but I don't think any of them are. So I'm wondering if it's one of those world mondos where they go around the world but not really because apparently it was shot in 20 days um and there's another scene that looks like a beauty pageant uh, with a with a boring looking guy in a brown suit and some women in (laughs) we were speculating earlier what they had on their breasts because again i think i yeah i think they're they're basically like weird bronze pasties which the other lady's wearing in the more detailed shot, as well as a, a, a some sort of Venetian mask. And then it flicks to the next shot and she's blowing flames out of her crotch. <laughs> <laughs> or like, is she dancing over a fire? I think that's what's happening. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's out of control. It's out of control and Nick is going to get burnt off in a minute. I I'm, I can't wait to watch this and see how wrong we are about all of this. <laughs> We'll have to go back and and play play this clip if we can find it and cover it. <laughs> and then it's like the whisper down the lane of a plot synopsis. And then there's a woman who looks a bit like Ingrid Pitt dressed as a nurse and a topless man, which is interesting. <laughs> and a band and a guy in horrible underpants. <laughs> the worst underpants. <laughs> it's the next shot though. It's like 
Um, I'm not sure if there was a fourth director and his name was H.G. Lewis because <laughs> this next shot <laughs> is just completely doesn't even look like it belongs to the rest of them, which is of somebody's arm with a knife going right through it. I can't imagine like it must just be a bunch of unrelated like little stories but I can't imagine a world in which all of these images go together like the next clip where it looks like some woman's trying to rip off a man's clothes and he's trying to jump away <laughs> <laughs> like what is that <laughs> it's it I mean it's very different to the rest of the films we're going to be talking about today. That I can tell you. Um, a shady guy in shades and a, and a woman who looks a bit like a blow-up doll from this blurry image, but if you look closer, <laughs> it's actually a woman. But um, his sunglasses also kind of look like those awful, disposable uh, 3D glasses that you yeah, get before they going do. into a theatre. <laughs> So, so yes, we thought we'd share that with you, and I'm sure you're yeah. all absolutely riveted um, now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Sorry. no one can accuse us of not being dedicated. And, you know, if we can't watch the film, we're going to review the synopsis or a few stills we find online, because, you know... Some weird bronze pasties. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> on, to, on to our first film, which I've completely lost the plot now, is we're back to Marcello again, the wonderful Marcello Mastriani, who um, I shamed myself on the first episode by uh, begging for a best of his face. And I will not take <laughs> that back. Hair. And his chest hair, which I would rub my own face in, and I'm not taking any of that back. So um, he Nor does... should you. No. And he does appear... Um, we need to discuss what you want the listeners to buy you, though, Sam, because I'm a best oh. is quite conservative compared to what <laughs> Sam wants for Christmas. Okay, so <laughs> as I think most of our regular listeners by this point know, we we both do a lot of different things. Like we we have day jobs, we edit Diabolink, we both write, we're working on books. So a lot of the time our conversations are focused on how stressed out we are. And last week I was saying that my my moments of zen lately have come from looking at pictures of John Maria Volante because that sounds really creepy when I say it out loud, but, but it's true. And I was saying to Kat that I would really like if someone could get me a rosary where all the different beads have different pictures of him and I could just carry it around. It's just so involved as well. Not just the same picture, they have to be different. No, they all have to be different and there can't there can maybe be like a couple repeats, but no. I'm sure we have some crafty sort of artistic listeners. That would you know, we we we'd really appreciate that. Uh, uh John... I would pay for that. <laughs> a Jean Maria Volante rosary collection for stressed out yeah. writers. Yeah, exactly. Then I could always carry him around in my pocket or in my cleavage. I know. <laughs> you so know, I wasn't thinking of practicality when I asked for a best. <laughs> I would like him to be portable. So, <laughs> so um, on that oh, note, <laughs> on that note, on to the first film, which is The Tenth Victim, which is uh, Petri's first colour film, because the first three films that we covered were all in black and white, and they all fit together nicely in the last episode. 
21st century shall be the one that has legalized violence. The rules of the big hunt are quite easy. Rule number one, each member is obliged to undertake 10 hunts. Five as a hunter, five as a victim. Rule number two, the hunter shall know all about his victim. Name, address, habits too. Rule number three, the victim shall not be told who his hunter is. I'm going to murder the two of you. I'm sorry, but just who are you? Rule number four, the one who comes out alive. After the tenth hunt, he shall receive honor. Don't stop, please keep kissing me. And one million dollars. As a souvenir. Are you busy this evening? This evening I'll probably be a dead man. Oh. I'm not going to say I'm a massive expert on Italian sci-fi, but I do love the fact that it's sort of sci-fi sapphire. A satire it's like italian jazz lounge cinema and it's um i mean it came out in a time when it came out in 1965 which was the same year as barva's planet of the vampires which incidentally i'm writing about next week so it was wonderful it was an interesting time for italian sci-fi um a lot more interesting than stuff coming out of the US. Like I said, I'm not a huge sci-fi fan, so I'm probably not the person to ask about sci-fi. But no, but it's it's also I think it's interesting because it there are a lot of different threads. So you do have the more cult-friendly stuff. Like I mean, not that Tenth Victim isn't cult-friendly, but you have the more sci-fi stuff, like Planet of the Vampires, and some of those films that are really meant to be sort of a straightforward look at that genre or that genre blended with horror or action. Well, there's a lot of fantasy sort of based sci-fi as well, wasn't there? Like Kaltiki or, I mean, yeah. the Vampires sort of fits into that fantasy remit as well. So uh, this is a little bit different. I think this aligns more with that whole sort of slick, chic, comic book, jazz sort of aesthetic that comes up in films like Danger Diabolic or later films like um, Feminina Redens, which is like The Laughing oh, Woman. Oh. It's yes, that, that really film is sort wild. of <laughs> sexy jazz sort of pop art thing that doesn't typically come up in sci-fi, like traditional sci-fi or sci-fi of the era. Well, it also, I think it it's weird because it straddles that, those types of films, but it also kind of belongs along with some of the art house sci-fi that was coming out at the time, like Alphaville, La Jetée, Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451, and one of my favorite films, which comes a bit later, is uh, Fassbender's World on a Wire. So it's directors who weren't really interested in, you know, making a lot of films in that genre. And you could even sort of put Zhuabsky's on a silver globe in here to a degree, but they just use it in such inventive ways. And I know that a lot of these films are hard to find for English language audiences. And I think most of them still haven't been released on DVD, but there is sort of this, this weird wave of Italian alien invasion comedies like uh, Toto on the Moon, which I haven't seen but need to, 
Well, Tinted Brass made one as well, didn't he? Um, Yeah. Disco Volante, which is sort of like a sci-fi comedy, but his earlier work was definitely a lot more political, a lot more satirical than um, the later stuff that he did, the more straight-up erotic stuff. No, absolutely. And it's it's interesting that... And we, we definitely talked about this in the last episode, how Petri sort of follows along with genres, but does something that's totally his own thing. Yeah, which um, I love. Um, I think it's interesting you mentioned the French connection as well, because Roger Vadim's Barbarella, um, Jane Fonda was actually the first choice for the 10th victim. That's who Petri wanted, but they were on a very, very tight budget. Um, and so they had Ursula Andress. Not that she's any cheaper than <laughs> Jane I, Fonda. I mean, I honestly, I prefer her to Jane Fonda. I think she's brilliant in this. I mean, we can go on and talk about her character more, but I just think, I don't know. I think Jane Fonda would have been a bit too girly and a bit too, you know, Andress is a, a bit cool too, cookie. Yeah, self-conscious or something. I, I mean, it could also be that I'm used to seeing, like, I know jane fonda's past performances and ursula andrus she's just i mean so much more believable in these kinds of roles like she can she can have a very sort of strong even mean-spirited side in a lot of her films yeah i mean she's perfect um the last sort of sci-fi thing i wanted to mention was even though i just said i'm not a huge sci-fi fan I do like some sci-fi from this area that moves into this sort of satirical domain. And I think especially the sort of mid to late 60s and early 70s, you had a lot of this happening in sci-fi, which got thrown out by these bloody blockbusting Star Wars sort of, you know huge spectacle cinema um you had a lot of great sort of sci-fi coming out of this area i mean last man on earth which is technically italian 1964 yeah um and stuff like no blade of grass and solient green omega man you just had these absolutely brilliant sort of little sort of dark sci-fis coming out and then you've also you even even that Hammer film, These Are the Damned. Yeah, I mean, God, I mean, um, it's, I mean, that's just amazing. It's just not this sort of blockbuster. I think sci-fi was a really good way of exploring social commentary, whereas now it's more to do with spectacle blockbuster cinema, in the wake of films like Star Wars. Which, to me, honestly, is not, and I've I've gotten into some very heated debates about this with Star Wars fans, and. To me, sci-fi is about what we're talking about. It's about finding a creative way to address social themes. And it's not about making some sort of myth cycle that's set in space. Like, I I don't think that's real sci-fi. I mean, it's sort of the difference between what Star Trek was doing. And of course, you know, it does have aliens. It is set in space. But a lot of the episodes are really all about investigating different things that they were critical of or they wanted to explore. I mean, it was the first show to feature a biracial kiss on American television, I believe. So so it's just it's stuff like that that I think the 10th victim does so well. But it's is at the a, same time it's a satire it's and a sort for, of an action movie. Yeah, and it's a forerunner for these sort of films, these modern gladiator films as well. Like Death Race, um, two thousand, like which I Rollerball, love. Rollerball, um, I mean, even modern times, you got Battle Royale or The Hunger Games, and 
1965, it was it was fairly forward thinking for its era because you know it it was sort of looking at these themes of a world without war, but exploring this sort of modern primitism and the fact that man still has to kill. So it's got some really, really, really. I mean, yes, it is an action film and it's a lot of fun and a romantic comedy and all these other things, but it's all those underlying themes that are just so petry that make it so wonderful, I think. Yeah, I I actually have this, uh, this really great quote about the movement and how he kind of ties into that. Uh, it's from this article that explores post-neorealist Italian sci-fi, the Italian post-neorealist sci-fi films likewise addressed rapid post-war modernization from a domestic Italian perspective, focusing in particular on the Italian economic miracle and the challenges to traditional family roles brought about by rapid urbanization and debates concerning the legalization of divorce. The late 1960s cycle would further develop sci-fi as a means to highlight expressions of political dissent, including those of contemporary left-wing student movements. And so that's just Petri to a T. So before we get into exploring some of these themes, I'll just talk about the plot quickly. So it was based on Robert Sheckley's short story The Seventh Victim. Petri renamed his The Tenth Victim and it's one part romantic comedy, one part gorgeous futuristic sci-fi vogue and one part sharp satire that parodies popular Italian comedy of the era such as 1961's Divorce Italian style, pitting Marcello Mastiani playing the um, rightly named Marcello Paletti <laughs> against the feminine wiles of Ursula Andrus, who plays assassin Caroline Meredith. And the two fight it out for the prize in a gladiator-style cat-and-mouse game as part of a legalised killing competition where prize is power, celebrity and cold hard cash. So what are your personal thoughts on this one? Well, to be honest, it's not one of my favourite Petri films, but I do... There are so many things about it that I love, and I think foremost is what you were saying earlier, how he blends all these different genres, but does it so effortlessly in a way that you kind of don't notice as it's unfolding. Like, it's hard to tell what kind of film it's going to be. Like, it's a constant surprise, basically. And I love that. I know how you feel about Marcello. So what do you think of the film? I love it. This this was the film that started my whole Petri obsession. Um, a few years ago, I'd I mean I'd seen Citizen and I hadn't really I think I said this on the first episode, I hadn't really sort of given him much thought, um, which seems strange now given that we're making such a commitment to the Petri cause. But it was um, I'd got this to review and it really took me on a sort of trip to explore him. Um, it's not my favourite, my favourite is coming up, but I love them all, and it's got Marcello, but the fucking hair, the blonde oh hair. Oh my god, the hair. Come on. <laughs> but it's fun, it's a lot of fun, and I and I think it explores a lot of his themes in a very lurid sort of comic book aesthetic, and it's very upbeat, and it's very slick, and it's very cool, so I do love it. And... 
I have to say, I think it has at least one of my top five favorite Marcello moments of all time, which is when he's introduced, you think that he's some sort of valet to this guy who's dressed up in a military uniform and is demanding that he be brought his (laughs) polished boots. And Marcello just has this sort of, he's not grinning, but he's got this totally shit-eating look on his face. Like, (laughs) I'll get your boots. Hold on, buddy. And he gives the guy his boots and he's rigged the heels of the boots with explosives. And so this guy gets all dressed and he looks, he looks absolutely immaculate. And he's staring at himself in a mirror and clicks his heels like, like he's, and I think this is a big Petri theme, especially in the later films is people performing the roles, not, not the actors, but the characters performing who they want to be or performing roles that they think they should be in. And this guy is, you know, saluting to himself and he clicks his heels and clicking the heels together makes him explode. <laughs> Which is just amazing. It's amazing. It's just so cool. Baron von Rochthofen has withdrawn. I mean, obviously, they are involved in this competition. I think if they get 10 kills and they become the sort of ultimate gladiator, we have Ursula Andress is sort of on her 10th kill and her introduction is just fucking fabulous. We can oh, talk God, about that in a best. bit. Um, <laughs> and Marcello's on his six. And what it is, is you get put into this machine. There are no wars, but uh, there's this legalized killing that... Um, to get out aggression yeah to get out aggression so you are selected by a a computer so you're either when you play a round if you survive then you go into a next round and the computer decides if you're killer or hunter or victim and the hunter gets all the details about their prey and and then they chase each other around the city which is amazing so um so we have got this female sort of huntress, this female Amazon gladiator in the form of Isha Andris. Um, and a lot of the, we talked about this in the last episode, is a big theme of Petrus was this battle of the sexes or men versus women. And as Sam just said, you know, you had a lot of issues with divorce laws at the time. I mean, divorce wasn't legal in Italy until 1970. So a lot of this sort of interplay and this sort of dynamic between men and women, which plays out in this in a sort of in a sort of black romantic comedy angle, which I I love. I absolutely love the 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 dynamic between Marcello and Ursula is just so good. It's wonderful. I think it's what it's what keeps the film from being just sort of this ridiculous, you know, dystopian satire, basically. It's the film's heart. Well, there's a lot of heart in it because you've got Marcello. He's as well as sort of ending up as her victim and being this sort of egotistical, sort of cheeky killer. He's a bit of a playboy, much like he is in Last Lucino in Petri's earlier film. He's a bit <laughs> in real life, <laughs> and in real life, he's a bit smug. He's Marcello, but you you've got to love him because he's got that cheeky little smile, and he's not phased that he's being hunted. Um, um, when they first meet, it's quite funny because they're in this sort of area where you're not allowed to kill. So she comes up and tries to chat him up. And the whole chemistry between those two is they don't just want to kill each other. 
they have to do it in some amazingly fabulous statement because they're both as sort of narcissistic as each other. And I think yeah, it's wonderful. I, I see. I don't think Jane Fonda would have worked in that, but Ursula Andress is just because she's so cool and so sort of she she's quite cold-hearted. The Caroline character, um, well, it, she's proud of being cold-hearted. She is because she just manipulates him, and she sort of they both got a team each as well to help them, which is good. These teams of yeah, advisors and... that go around with them, and sort of I, I think they feel like equals. Yeah, which is, I mean, they are, well, I don't know. She's a bit, she's a bit more, you know, um, she's cleverer and a much better killer than Marcello, though, which he doesn't like. Yeah, but I, I mean, in terms of the whole Jane Fonda thing, I, I don't think the plot would have worked in quite the same way if no, it was her. because she's too emotional and too, I don't know, it needs that, because it is a romantic comedy, but it's not a... Uh, uh, it's not this soppy romantic comedy in no, any way. No, it's not sentimental. No, which is which is what I like about it. Um, and and on top of that, so he's going through a divorce. So in this future world, you're allowed to get divorced, and people have multiple dis- divorces, which is like something that actually happened when people were allowed to get divorced five years later. Yeah. So and people talk about being on their tenth marriage or whatever. So Marcello's going through this divorce with his wife, and he's also got this sort of greedy, crazy girlfriend called Olga, who's insanely jealous and trying to get him down the aisle again. She's played by Elsa Martinelli, Olga. Um, <laughs> great, <isn't laughs> she's it? really good. She's like really hysterical, and she just she can't wait for him to get divorced so she can marry him. And he's sort of putting it off, and you know doesn't want her to know that he's his divorce is imminent. So and that's a great thing, um, and it does tie into the whole Petri thing of relationships coming down to what you own or how much money you've got. Because one of the earliest scenes with Marcello is this couple sort of dividing up their spoils of their marriage and they've got the uh, the antique comic book collection which is quite <laughs> hilarious <laughs> um and they're sort of splitting it up and they all live in these amazing pads like that you know we never actually that got that make you want to cry well, we because you can't got live them, in them did we we never got furniture like big round chairs and those weird telephones and stuff we were robbed it's a crime. Yes, we were robbed. <laughs> I demand that furniture. <laughs> I demand it all. So you've got that going on, and and you've got that whole thing between the the men and the women, and 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 with Marcello and Ursula chasing each other around, trying to seduce each other, because it becomes that it, they don't just want to kill the other person; they want to make the other person sort of humiliated and fall in love with them. Which is a nice touch. It just makes it's it... a nice touch. It's so mean. <laughs> it's so mean. <laughs> so, and then you've also got the Petri standard of the digging at Rome society at the Vatican organizations. And I do love at the beginning of this, there's like a little nod to Fellini's Adultery Vita. I'm sure there is when Ursula arrives in yes. a helicopter over Rome. And I don't know if that's like an intentional thing or what, but it must it, have been. It must have been. It's just such it's just such a good little touch because it's Marcello in the in the other one, but she's sort of coming down. I still say that we ought to shoot it in the studio. Stop cackling about it, will you? You come all the way to Rome and now you want to shoot in a studio. What are you, flaky? 
Hey, that wouldn't be a bad spot. But the body could fall in that fountain in the middle. No, that would never work. I just saved the day. You know what the perfect place is? The Coliseum. Hey, that's not bad, not bad. How about it if we change the script and we open the show with a couple of dozen gladiators? Steady, boy, steady. We're on a budget, remember? Now, listen, we can bring them in from Yugoslavia for peanuts. I think it's a good idea. Although we have to watch out they don't smash the equipment and everything. Say, if we could get him rigged up as a gladiator, that would really be the greatest. I like it. I like it. And I come as Cleopatra. Now, what's Cleopatra got to do with the Coliseum? Wait a minute. Forget about it. We can't shoot in there. It's full of holes. Yeah, maybe you're right. Well, they just let it go to pot, didn't they? And what about the chorus? A midget couldn't dance in there, much less 20 girls. Now, we got to find somewhere else. Wait a minute. There it is, Carolyn. That's where you're going to kill him. Right down there. What is it? The Temple of Venus. And they have a lot of this dialogue that goes back and forth about Roman society. Is um the dialogue is just I <laughs> like, uh, well is I feel like she's come from America, hasn't she? I don't think we mentioned that. Yeah. She's supposed to be American. She finds Rome quite backward thinking because you can't kid in churches and you can't kill in orphanages and you can't sort of <laughs> you know, and she complains about that. They have these sort of safe zones where you can't kill and she thinks that's not good sport and you have other people moaning about it you know and there's a lot of this sort of it's stuff that goes on in the background that's sort of social commentary or social criticism that's just done in the background very subtly it's not in your face just through little things that you overhear which is really well done i think here i like the commercials i love those Oh, the commercials are amazing. They've got that, why have, what was it? Why have birth control when you can have death control? Have death control. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got, so the sponsorships that they have. So yes, they are super narcissistic and play into the whole spectacle side of things in a major way. But there's, they're they're both sort of fighting for the ultimate sponsorship which is like this tea commercial. Oh, the Ming tea commercial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Ursula gets this idea, or Caroline, her character gets this idea that she's not just going to kill Marcello. She disguises herself because she knows he's an egotistical shit who loves himself. So she preys on his ego and she poses as this reporter who's doing a... She's... Um, She's doing a documentary on male sexuality and she wants to interview him at this Venus uh, temple. Uh, But what it is is a ruse that she's going to lure him there and she's going to kill him live on this commercial for the Ming Tea Company. And she has to lure him there at midnight. They've got this like little camera crew and these people dressed up as teacups (laughs) ready to dance around. But he, he gets... So Marcello sort of realises she's the killer and he wants to get her on his own. But isn't his commercial for some manly thing? Yeah. yeah. This was a ridiculously <laughs> silly manly thing and he decides he's going to get her killed by a man-eating crocodile. <laughs> Which is so amazing. So there's this scene where, it, like, they basically both have agents helping them out to devise this stuff and as we said she's way more sophisticated than he is he has this sort of 
kind of helpful but kind of obtrusive agent who is the one who gets this sponsorship and they have to do a dry run of the killing sequence and they try to get this poor guy to sit next to this pool where the, the crocodile is <laughs> gonna come out of <laughs> it's like no 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 it's fine it's totally fine <laughs> oh it's so ridiculous so he he sort of tries to they're trying to lure each other to these places and they and they and they, and it oh, it keeps going tits up basically, which is which is just so good. And you've got all these crazy other people involved in the background, and Marcello's crazy girlfriend and his ex-wife. Um, and it is all this sort of consumerism, and there's this lot of this sort of, you know, we're going to talk about this in more depth when we get to some of the later films. But this economic miracle again, this making people want things and want want items and being worth you know being judged on their economic value which is why youth and sort of able-bodiedness is is termed as being you know prime but in this world there's like no old people they just send them off to some center because they've obviously got no economic value value at all which yes. is sad but what i love about marcello is even though he's a little shit he's a bit of a softy on the side and he's got his parents hidden in his house <laughs> in this mock-up of this sort of old-fashioned front room behind this sliding wall it's adorable <laughs> it's so adorable and then he has this little thing about he he's sort of explaining to ursula how you know they have to old hide the old people you know, because they're his family, and sometimes they take them out and dress, disguise them as teenagers. As teenagers, <laughs> <laughs> which is so, it's it is really adorable. I think that's why it sort of it doesn't ever sort of get too hard or too cruel or too. It has got a lot of cruelty in it, but it's also a lot of fun. And um, and there's this sort of I somewhere in there, this sort of thing about families and human connections which does come up in some of his other work yeah and the lack of spiritualism you've got people like marcello's other job oh (laughs) this is such a weird touch but such a great touch it's so bizarre so he's this south-styled guru would you call him a guru he's like a he's a priest basically but yeah he runs this um i don't know like a cult or this membership where people basically go out to the beach at night and they cry at the sunset um marcello is like the head of them i think because he just likes to have the power and Ursula, and the attention and the attention yeah. he's in this sort of robe and he's like telling the people to cry and they're all sobbing and when Ursula asks him about it, he's got like, doesn't he take a pill? He puts something in his eyes to make him cry. She's like, oh, well, you're crying. He does. Because he, he is a little shit. <laughs> but the scene, the scene is so amazing because he gives this really moving speech about, you know, natural beauty and how the sunset is a wonder. And she's really moved by it. And she genuinely starts to tear up. And you think, okay, now they're finally making this connection. Today our sunset begins at 7.33. Meditation on the brother sun. We are born in this world by chance, but fortunately we must all die by chance. This is the last ray of light which has traveled 145 million kilometers. Our father is leaving us. We can see him darkening with our own eyes. Oh, we must not despair. Our tears purify us. 
They liberate us of the agonies of our daily cares. In the sweetness of our agony, let me remind you that as we mourn the passing of our lifelong friend, our brothers in California are greeting him as he rises in joy. Now let us concentrate, my friends. The moment of departure is at hand. Let us begin. The, the film definitely gives you the idea that they're not just sort of inherently terrible. They're terrible as a defense mechanism. Like society has made them this way. And they've been encouraged not to pursue lasting emotional connections. It's it's very kind of brave new world. Well, but Ursula's <laughs> character, she sort of, when she meets his family, she's quite taken aback by that. And she says, well, I was yeah. born in an insemination center. So she's come from a background where there's no, there's no family, which is kind of sad, really. And all the way through, you've got this thing that people want connection, but they they don't have this around them naturally. Um, and one of the things that I thought was quite interesting is when people want to go to relax, they go to a relaxation center where um, Marcello goes there because he's a bit stressed and this woman's there in the room and she's sort of a bit like a prostitute, but you get the idea that it's not really for sex. It's more to do with intimacy or having yeah. to touch. And I thought this was really interesting because I remember reading an article, I think, last year about how in Japan there's a cafe now that you can go to where you pay people to hug you, which is like the Kador Cafe. Because in Japan now, their society is, you know, young people don't get into relationships and they're very disconnected. And so people go and they go to these places to to buy a human connection, not necessarily a sexual connection. So I thought, you know, considering this film was made like in 1965, that is quite, well, you know. It is. It's also interesting because a lot of there, I don't want to say a lot, but there are certainly plenty of people who go to strip clubs for the same reason, is because they want that kind of, connection they want someone who will talk to them and pretend to like them oh definitely it's it's you know people again another recent discussion somebody raring up about many youth sex workers i saw quite a spirited discussion about that with people sort of saying how disgusting it was and people were saying well you know what about people who want a connection and just can't get them for whatever reason you know what about those people, yeah. you know, and it is that just on a, on a, on a, on a slightly sort of deeper scale, I suppose, without the sex, which runs all the way through this film. There is a lot of chemistry between the two, but you get the idea that it's not about sex for either of them. No. And I think the issue is that she wants to make it about sex, but when it's not, she's confused and she doesn't know how to deal with that. And it it's it really is disorienting for her. So as well as the beautiful people, you've got the beautiful scenery and the beautiful cinematography and the beautiful art and the beautiful pop culture in this. It is... Yeah, it's it's unforgettable to look at. I mean... There are silly elements like her amazing gun bra that was ripped off by Austin Powers. Which is so fucking good. It's great. So this is the opening scene that we just referenced before. When we when the film opens, it's actually in New York. 
and you see her Sarandis in a black wig running through the city. It's very black and white, very sort of monotone, very futuristic. It was shot in New York. She runs into this club, the Massac Club, which is aptly named, because she's luring yes. her ninth victim, I guess. This is pre Marcello there. And she runs in, and this guy is so stupid he doesn't realise. She takes the wig off, and she's got, and she takes this dress off it looks a bit like cowhide it's like black and white with these sort of spots on rips it off she's got this shiny sort of spiky metal bikini on it underneath and she does a sort of strip routine or goes to do a strip routine in this white club with all these people sat around and he doesn't realize a victim he just settles down to watch this woman strip and she's got a fucking gun in a bra (laughs) And shoots him. In the face. Is he dead? Yeah. All in order? Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Silence, please. Silence. Hunter or victim? (laughs) It's fantastic. It is fantastic. And and so weird as well, because I saw an interview with Sarandris. He said that the actual metal bikini, it cut her. It was like it actually cut into her and she couldn't move her arms and it was like really, really uncomfortable. And in a weird twist of fate, I I recently watched William Klein's Who Are You, Polly Magoo, one of those films that floats on my peripheral. But and I which I still need to see. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And and I've seen stills. I'm like, oh, must check that out. And it just popped up, so I watched it. And there's a scene in that with these fashion parades where the models are dressed in these metal strange metal clothes and they get cut by the metal and i just thought it was a weird little synergy thing there <laughs> that, that popped up in my life like these sort of connections do but it was are wonderful they are but it wasn't very nice for poor ursula because she had to wear that thing and look and she does look very sexy cavorting around in it but she does so yeah it is as well as ursula it is very beautiful um and Petri was a massive fan of sort of art and everything. I saw another interview with his wife, Paola Petri. He talked about how he was very influenced by this sort of pop culture art style, like very Andy Warhol. He was particularly... Yes, the stuff that I hate. Yeah, he's, <laughs> it, I mean, I love it. It works in this. I wouldn't say I'm a fan of it. it. It's a, it's a, I wouldn't want that in my house. Um, but in this... No, but here, here, I think the only film... I can think of that looks anything like this is Femina Ridens, like you were yeah. saying, and it works so well in both of it them. It does because it, it it goes with the cold characters, I think, as well. It's not too fantasy based. It's not too it's it's quite cold in a way, which goes with the persona of the the main people. And that film as well is a similar sort of setup there. Um and Petri was apparently very taken with this sculptor called George Segal. Um so he replicated some of that art not it's not original art but he replicated these very strange sculptures that are in marcello's house or marcello's wife's house i think it is so you've got that and you've also got this sort of old versus new so you've got futuristic settings and then you've got the rome coliseum and everything and then you've got the new york which only features in sort of one scene because apparently the producer Carlo Ponti was a bit of a cheapskate. He didn't particularly like sci-fi, but he was um because Marcello was on board, he sort of went for it. So they took a very, very small crew to New York. They were only allowed to take a handful of people and they were there literally for a couple of days and then they they came back to Rome to film it. 
But it does give an interesting juxtaposition of this old and new because the Colosseum comes up so many times and this Roman gladiator theme, which is so fitting to the whole Italian thing, I think. Well, and I think it's a really great visual symbol of how the film contrasts, you know, these old cultural values and old social values with all this dramatic sudden change, both change that's economic and both things like sexual freedom and changing gender roles. And he just does it so well. I think there's a warning in there as well of excess and the perils of excess and not to be too greedy and not to want too much, um, which is a sort of theme yeah. that crops up a lot. Um, in well, and work. I think there's a warning not to be cold and closed off, which is also a problem in his next film. Yeah. Before we quickly move on to the next film, I just want to mention because our last, our last ones we talked about Salvo Randoni, who who was in. Um, oh yes. In a couple of his first films, and from this point on, he pops up in these small roles as these sort of wise or patriarchal characters or these older characters which is quite cool and he pops up as a little professor in this so it's it's nice when you watch the films go along because it's spot salvo and he has yes, i love seeing he, him. i love seeing him. he's got some absolutely brilliant little roles as well um and he's in this next in the next film oh he's in all of these films i think isn't he he's in most of them yeah almost all of them so talking of old versus new Yes. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I'm ready. <laughs> so this next film, which is a Kashuno Osuo or We Still Kill the Old Way, is his first film with John Maria Volante. <laughs> and I'm going to have to pass out and someone will revive me in order for this conversation to continue. <laughs> and not to be confused with the... I think, was there a film called that in 2015? Uh, there was a film called We Still Call the Old Way, a modern American film, and I kept seeing people posting about it and it was making me really cross because no one mentioned the Elio Petri film. Yeah, I think it's either that or we kill the old way or it's it sounds really similar. It does. It sounds really similar and it's like, how dare you, you know, ignore this and just, you know, I don't know, it might be a good film. I didn't watch it. I was too angry about the title. It's like when Crash came out. I was <laughs> so Cron Cronenberg's Crash is one of my favorite films of all time. And there's another American film called Crash that came out. At least I think it's American. It must be. Yeah that came out a couple years ago and all of a sudden everyone I just heard people saying oh my god have you seen Crash it's so great and I would just look at the person and think like really like you like that that movie like great <laughs> and then I came to realize they're not talking about the same fucking Crash <laughs> and I couldn't see that movie because I was so angry about the title I know we're, we're petty at that like that at Doors of Darkness <laughs> yeah I'm fine I'm fine with that <laughs> We're protective of the things we love. Put it that yeah, way. Yeah, protective. We're, we're not sad That's bastards. better than petty. Yeah, we're not sad bastards. <laughs> we're dedicated and we're not petty. We're... <laughs> and occasionally violent. <laughs> protective. <laughs> so talking of protection, I mean, this, this sort of taps into this one, doesn't it? 
So before we go on to the themes again, um, perhaps if you want to give a little bit about the plot. Yes, which is wonderful. And so this probably ties with Investigations of a Citizen Above Suspicion as my favorite Petri film. I absolutely love this one. Um, usually if you see it online, it's, or like if you see the back of a, a movie case, or if you see it referred to in a book, it's a lot of the time it's referred to as a mob film, which I think is really, really misleading. It's, it's almost like with La Cicino, his first film where it's, it's not, things aren't at all as they seem. Well, it's a Petri and film, so, isn't it? And I think like you yeah. just said earlier, he did sort of brush with genre but then he took it completely down his own path and people don't really seem to know people seem to like to be able to pigeonhole things or especially mar i mean a lot of it's to do with distribution isn't it and marketing, yeah, marketing. But it, with petri it's never just that <laughs> it's never just a mob film or a thriller or a sci-fi never no, and I think that we we said this a little bit in the last episode, but I think that kind of is our favorite type of film, our favorite type of director. People who don't make things easy for you. No, because we don't want them easy. You know, definitely not. No, that would be bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, speaking of this film, it opens with the absolutely wonderful Luigi Pistilli, who... To see him and John Maria in a film together, it's a good thing that their scenes together are so short because I don't think I could have handled it. Like I probably would have just keeled over and had a heart attack oh. if, if they had been and he, he, in the whole thing. He is a bit of a shitbag in this as well. Like he is the drunk oh my God. professor in your vice is a lot ring. So he is a bit of a shit ice. But you kind of know Which that. I love. You kind of know that when and, you see him. No, and in a, a white dress for Mariella, which we'll have to talk about it at some point. It has the best theme, it, that film. I yes, that oh my theme. God, but he's such a bastard in that movie. <laughs> so I think when you see him, you know that he's probably not going to be the hero. But here, he plays this pharmacist named Arturo, and he keeps getting these letters threatening his death, and they're all in this sort of standard ransom note, like letters cut out from a magazine. And... His friend, who is a professor, Lorana, which is the great John Maria, figures out that they come from this newspaper, which mainly goes to people connected to the church. And so he's getting he's getting these letters and doesn't really take them seriously, but knows that people have cause to want to kill him because he's a womanizer. He sleeps with everyone, including he's the 15 year old maid. Yeah, he's terrible to his wife and also is sleeping with a 15-year-old. And in, in typical Luigi Pastile style. I know, I was going to so stop he... chuckling then, then I realised how inappropriate <laughs> it was. But it's very your vice, isn't it? Because he goes from one to the other, but his wife's got a bloody moustache. So... Uh, yeah, his wife is really unfortunate looking here, and that's no reason to treat someone terribly, <laughs> but the Petri makes it very hard to find sympathy for her. We'll get to that a little <laughs> bit more later, but Arturo and Dr. Roscio decide to go on a hunting trip. And while they're on the hunting trip, an unseen person hunts them down and kills them both with a rifle. And so the cops show up 
and they think that it's probably the family members of the 15-year-old girl, you know, with good reason. But Lorana is absolutely convinced that it's not her family and that it's someone else. And because the cops are ignoring him, he decides he's going to solve the crime on his own with the help of his friend Rossello, who's played by Gabriella Ferzetti. But you come to find out that nothing is at all as Lorana thought it would be. And the doctor's widow, uh, Louisa, who's played by Irene Pappas of Don't Torture a Duckling, is involved in some way. But she's really the only person who wants to help him solve the crime, except he's in love with her. And his obsession kind of pushes things towards their extremely grim conclusion which i can't believe when i watch this again because it's been a few years i'd forgot the end it's amazing and then i was just like man this is fucking brutal it was like i don't know it's horrible Why I didn't but it's amazing it. i don't know i don't know i know you said this was one of your favorites um i don't know for me it wasn't but i i liked it a lot more this this second time round. Yeah, I I don't know. I think I loved it so much because again, it's he does that thing where you think it's going to be one kind of film, and even if you don't read a plot synopsis going into it, you think it's going to be a murder mystery, maybe even something like a Jalo film because it starts off with these death threats and it seems like there's a lot of misdirection and red herrings going on. But then it just it becomes, it goes back to one of his favorite themes, which is, is sort of man in the midst of an existential crisis. The theme of existential crisis or alienation was is something we talked about a little bit in the last episode, and it's definitely something that Petri thought a lot about. Uh, in this interview with him, he said, alienation was studied not as a psychological phenomenon, but as a social fact. Directors like Rossellini, Visconti, Antonioni, and Fellini, developing the neorealist legacy, tried to testify to the earlier psychological and human damage of alienation. My earlier films also reflect this point of view. And he, so he does say that he broke away from them, but that those kinds of themes were really influential to him as well. And I think particularly from something like 10th Victim, or even Days Are Numbered, it, it becomes just such an overwhelming presence in all his films. Was that from the interview he did on the Criterion disc for Citizen? Um, no. It's from this interview called Cinema is Not for an Elite, but for the Masses. Maybe oh. they've reprinted it, but is it's it, from Cineast. Was it... Oh, he did this um on the Criterion disc for Citizen... There's an interview with him with them. It's a French interview and he talks about a lot of French directors and how they tackle the theme of alienation and how, but how he felt that their cinema was sort of, there was a disconnect there. And he talked about Brecht as well and how he felt that Brecht was sort of, who tackled alienation, but did it in a much more 
collaborative way in a way that sort of reached out to the the um audience and that's what he tried to do in his films and he called brecht pop art and he said that's what he tried to do as well that he wanted to he we we talked about this on the first episode that he wanted to be like a filmmaker that connected with the people and so i think when he does alienation it is very kafka and very philosophical and sometimes abstract and sometimes completely fucking absurd um but also there's this very human connection in there or this thing that you can identify with or a I wouldn't even necessarily say a sympathy with a lot of the characters. Definitely a sympathy with the character here. Um, I think he's Hatchie's most sympathetic character. Definitely. But I think in terms of Brecht, his alienation effect, it wasn't about showing how people were lonely or isolated. It was exactly what Petri was doing, where it's, like what the alienation effect literally means is showing a a standard human interaction or an object or a place and making the audience think about why they feel that way about that to begin with. And just trying to, in a very political, very leftist way, trying to make you rethink everything. But he does it in a way that's, I don't know. It doesn't feel... I don't want to keep repeating old Grant because we did talk about this in the first episode. But he does it in a way that doesn't happen on a sort of cold intellectual level like a lot of other directors of the era, even though he tackles similar themes. He does it on a very connecting level. And I think the way he does it here is through this bizarre love story that develops this no definitely and like brecht he did it through humor a lot too through like these little funny scenes where people are are just meant to look very real and very human and sometimes very absurd and everybody's always really awkward in his films which i love especially um, this one especially this one so before we get on to the existential themes i mean there is this theme of institutionalized violence which is a reoccurring theme um, he returns to this from his previous Assassino, which was all about police, the police state. And um, here it's all about sort of mafia and sort of, like you said, it's not really a mob film, but it covers these sort of old institutions, these old families. It's set in Sicily. So it yeah, that ties can't in, be an accident. No. So it ties into this whole area era which is sort of left-leaning politics, post-war politics, with these very ineffectual governments that sort of mob bosses and and criminals had managed to infiltrate and get themselves into places of power. And there wasn't really anybody sort of monitoring that or, you know, it was... Um, we talked about the economic boom in with the 10th victim. Um, that's not so much of an aspect here, but it is all part of the same period where people no. were rushing to cities and there was this a, a, a huge amount of economic power that tied into government and a lot of mismanaged money and a lot of shadiness and, you know, and a, and, and a lot of money sort of misappropriated here and there and the and the mob getting into these council positions and police positions and all sorts so 
he no absolutely he touches on that in this which i love it's it because it's just a, a, sort of a sicilian background it's it's set in a rustic sort of small village it feels like tonally it feels a bit different to his other thriller type films which are more city based but i love that it's aspect so of it it is such a beautiful film it is so well, beautiful and i think he he uses those mafia and organized crime themes in a really subtle way i mean i'm sure he was commenting on the situation at the time which the so the first mafia wars were in the early 60s i mean between 1961 and 1963 there were almost 70 people killed just from mafia family squabbles as people sort of elbowed their way into positions of real political power and i think you see that at the end of this film but you don't totally realize that that's where it's going like it feels almost more like like house of the laughing windows where it's just yeah. sort of this rural communal conspiracy but it turns out to be more than that i know and everyone's really sinister and so sinister you don't know who to trust and it's all like you know they've got this sort of people you've got the townspeople so you've got the professors sort of inner circle and everyone seems to be related as well like they're all cousins or whatever and then you've got these v rural sort of communities on the outside who are sort of terrified of this it's almost like a feudal sort of thing set up going there where you've got the people in positions of power who work inside the town and and then you've got these people on the outside these farmers who are sort of scapegoats or they're powerless um and You've just got this one man in the middle of it who is just truly virtuous and good. Who, and innocent. And he's so innocent. And he's it, it's such a different ro role for Volante. It's so yeah, subtle and so understated. He's so awkward. <laughs> and awkward. And he does have that same intensity, but it's in a completely different way to the intensity that he would show later for Petri. It's a different different sort of intensity very subtle very i don't know i love his character here he's he's he Me too. he is so sympathetic which you don't generally find in petri films yeah but even even that is sort of tempered by the sexual assault scene yeah where well, not everyone no one is perfect in petri though everybody is flawed everybody Sure, um, but you get the sense that he's flawed because he's kind of caught between these two worlds where in the more urban progressive world, he's this really intelligent professor and he loves his career. And then he's sort of caught in this other world, which is very Catholic, much more traditional. He's He's basically an outsider because he doesn't have a romantic relationship. He's not married. He spends half his time teaching in the city and half his time in town staying with his mother. And even though he has these friends, he just never really seems to fit in. It's well, almost like he's never that, really grown yeah, up. Yeah, you get the sense as well that he's sort of lost contact, even though he's still physically there in some way, that he, that he sort of somehow lost contact with his friends. And then this death happens and this sort of acts as a catalyst for him to suddenly get involved in 
local life but you get this idea it's almost like he's been away for years but he hasn't actually been away because he lives with his mother there but he's sort Uh, of you know been busy with his academic career and all that and he gets attracted to Louisa who's the other widow the not the one with the moustache um, no, the more attractive widow. There's a lot of looking at her stockings and, you know. But she's she's very, I love how she's kind of not only a little bit cast against type, but she's also costumed against type. Like, she's very austere. She doesn't wear a lot of makeup. She's got these dark circles under her eyes, which Irene Pappas has in every role. And she doesn't flirt with him. She doesesn't lead him on. She just it's it's almost like you get the sense that he's a little bit attracted to her because she's so matronly. In but a weird there's way. such a chemistry between them. Even though it doesn't there really is. I think of all Petri's films, this has got some of the most erotic chemistry. Even Definitely. though it's not particularly erotic and you can't really understand why. But some of the scenes between those two are so intense and so, I don't know. Like, you really do want them to get together and he's so fumbling and awkward and she's not particularly uh, yeah. flirting, so he keeps trying to pounce on her but then sort of regretting it and, you know... He's, he's very, like a teenager. He's so tortured and just... You know, but there's something really perversely erotic about that. And I can't really explain it now I'm saying it out loud. No, there is. And I I think that's what makes this one of my favorites is that central relationship. And she helps him with... I kind of don't want to ruin the end of the film. No, I don't want to ruin the ending because it's... yeah. So all I'll say is that she helps him with the mystery and kind of what we were saying about 10th victim you get the sense that all of this is happening and the reason that he set down this path so determinedly is because even though arturo was a total bastard he had a real connection lorana had a real connection with him and he's trying so hard to find that connection again and finds it with luisa but is so sort of repressed and everything so internalized that unlike the other men in her life who are very aggressive full of machismo want to wine and dine her he he barely even knows how to talk to her and he uses the investigation it's like he genuinely does want to solve the crime but at times he uses the investigation as a way to get close to her or spend time with her well, definitely it's like he's driven with a sort of obsession with her to actually because you know her husband was killed and it's almost like he wants to present her with her husband's killer there's this way of forming a bond with her which is entirely inappropriate and you just know it's not going to end well because that's just not how you sort of make a move but um oh and i don't think we said so the while arturo the pharmacist is the one getting the death threats you learn very early in the film that it seems that Arturo wasn't the real target, but it was a red herring because the actual target was Dr. Rossio, Louisa's husband. And there's a lot of red herrings in this. And like you said, it does tie into a jarro sort of way in, in that respect that you've got this these these two men that are dead. They've been shot on a hunting trip 
um, and you've got this whole town and anybody could be in on it and you've got all these men, these sort of notables, you've got priests and we know that the the death threats came via a newspaper that's for priests so there's that aspect and you think oh maybe you know and you give it the jallo logic um you know maybe it's a priest or you've got the lawmen or the you know you've got the sort of local criminals and and you know and it, yeah, and it could and be any like of shady them. political figures and there's who... a lot of shaking hands in corners and yes. giving them the secret devil's horn signs as well the do signs which, which is like, wonderful it's like a little secret signal and it, it does play down that jallo line and you think a lot of the camera work and a lot of the way it's filmed as well this sort of very stifling sort of suspicious atmosphere you think somebody's about to get killed at any moment um which is and which he is, does that so well it's so good. The atmosphere is like you could just cut it with a knife in some of the scenes. And he does I mean, get the him... whole thing is so tense. Oh, there's so many times he gets himself into a corner and you just think, how the hell is he going to get out of this? It's just so good. I think he does that earlier on. Um, it, it's almost like a hark back to when he did um, Il Giorno Contati, where the, the guy yeah. in that gets lured to this warehouse with these sort of seedy criminals who are going to break his arm and it's there's a few scenes that sort of mirror that but they're just nastier and and more violent and just more sinister um so it's sort of a progression from there and a progression from la assassino as well with these sort of institutional criminals you know because they're the police are sort of the police aren't really mob in la assassino but they're they're not exactly law-abiding either no, and they all have their own agendas. I think with Petri, though, and it's like we said about Yan Show when we covered Yan Show, even though he was left wing and he had been a member of the Communist Party, and I think he became somewhat disillusioned by politics as he went along. Um, even though there are these sort of political, cr critical things about consumer society, about the Italian economy, about the erosion of Italian culture and the erosion of the male identity. And he brings these things up and there is a sort of left-leaning stance to what he was saying. I think above all that, he was interested in this exploration of power systems like Yancho, um, where he almost doesn't, sort of distinguish between good and bad all power is bad to to petri you all, know yeah all power is capable of immediately corrupting and that pessimism i think this is his most pessimistic film well it's because the protagonist is such an innocent in a way and he almost doesn't see that that's going on and he trusts these are people that he's grown up with in families he's known his whole life. And he, even though he knows something's up and he knows his... Because they immediately frame these two illiterate farmers. And the professor figures out, you know, they're illiterate. They can't sit there and make a death note out of little newspaper clippings. They can't even read and write. So yeah. he's clever enough to suss that out. But it's almost like he doesn't want to believe the truth because... You know, it's part of his his sort of childhood and that. And these are, the way he talks about a lot of the people, it's like he's known them all his life, even though he's sort of disconnected. So he's very innocent in that respect. The, the more he gets into it, the more sort of, you know, it, it sort of starts to unravel his own psyche and what he feels about his own identity and his own sense of sanity. So well done. It's in such a wonderful way, although it is... 
the ending, you just, it's a little bit ludicrous because it's, there is the, the standard Petri explosion, but it's so grim. Oh, it's and, just like. <laughs> and my, my favorite, my, so my favorite thing is there's this horrible ending where nothing goes as you thought it was going to go, but that's not the end of the film. He twists the knife even fucking yeah. further oh, by God. showing you that other characters get this happy ending and everything works out the way oh, it's supposed to. It's just and it's so... just... <laughs> it has got this sort of tension between men and women in, which we can't really explore without sort of going into the ending. So we can't, but there is a lot of this sort of sadism to do with gender and cruelty and this sort of strange power dynamic between men and women. Um, and there's this sense that almost all of the men in the film, including Lorana, even though his is sort of tempered by his sweetness and innocence, it almost is set up like this competition where the men have to push the women down because otherwise they'll have power of their own. And it seems like across the board, no one wants that. Yeah. Well, that comes up in a lot of his films. And we talked about it in the in the first episode, but it comes up um, in so many of these films, this sort of strange relationship of these women that are, are dominant, but the men are sort of trying to rise against that. Or, or just society, the way society is changing is freeing women and it's giving them more economic power, which therefore gives her, them more political power and more sexual power and more everything power and the men are responding to that by sort of trying to keep them down which comes yeah, up in, often with you know violence. Is, a, is a major theme in the film we'll talk about in the next episode um yes yes <laughs> <laughs> My, i'm trying to keep the excitement down till we get there <laughs> but as we wind this one down i we did want to bring up a quiet place in the country again which again is about power play between the sexes 1968 we've already covered this on our art jallo episode so if you want to hear like a huge plot breakdown and everything about this film um head on over to the website and find that episode was it episode episode one that we covered it on uh we'll put a link we'll put a link yes. into text to find that Quick synopsis is A Quiet Place in the Country can be considered Petri's only giallo film. Using a mix of horror and eroticism, this was the director's most experimental project, a highly visual piece of cinema that blends sensuality and violence to dizzying effect. Franco Nero stars as artist Leonardo Ferri, who escapes to a lush country retreat, an impressive, crumbling gothic villa in the middle of the countryside, in order to break free from creative block. His mind begins to unravel when he becomes obsessed with the vision of a female ghost he believes is haunting the house. And as his girlfriend and manager Flavia, played by Nero's real-life partner at the time, Vanessa Redgrave, puts more pressure on him to come up with the goods, he loses his sanity completely, ultimately resorting to violence as a way of channeling his inner pain. Um, 
And Frank and it's glorious. It is so glorious. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave um, sort of said about this film that she she realised how important it was, and she'd been impressed by Petrie's previous work, but she um, didn't as quite, a leftist herself. Yeah, didn't quite get it, but she knew that it was important. Uh, Petrie had originally wanted Jack Nicholson, or the producers had and wanted thank Jack. Nich- God, I know because um, it's like sorry. But no. I, he would have been intense, but Nero brings his intensity all of his own. It's just so it's, amazing. It's a different thing. I think Jack Nicholson would have made it seem, and not to not to say anything bad about The Shining, but it's sort of a similar descent into madness. And like I like The Shining. I mean, it's the only film I've ever seen that genuinely scared me. But there are a lot of really campy elements that I don't think would have worked very well in a film like this. No, Nero and is so good in this. He, I yeah. think this is one of my favorite roles of his. He's, he's, he's got this sort of savage sort of intensity, like he's just so on edge and he's just so, you know, as he gets more and more desperate. Um, he said it was the experience was a harsh and beautiful experience. Um and he called Petri the greatest Italian director of the past. Um, and I saw an interview with Franco Nero where he sort of pointed out that Petri made so many films that were all so stylistically different that he was truly original. He didn't pander to any sort of market. He just made his own art. Um, so Nero loved being in it. I don't think Vanessa liked it as much, though. But... Um, I think well, the focus also wasn't on her as no, much, because it's so his story. Could... Um, but you have got this yeah. power between the sexes thing. You've got these almost. I think as you get into this sort of late sixties point for Petri, they get a lot more violent. Obviously, as a move with the times, um, and more erotic, um, and nastier. And you have got so the relationship between Nero and Redgrave in this is sort of based on this very strange sort of Sardian power play it's where wonderful. it's wonderful she's his manager she wants him to create art to sell to these prestigious italian bourgeois sort of counts and whatever and nero just wants to paint things red and he's this crazed artist who just wants to be left alone to create and she disrupts his energy so he has these strange dreams that she sort of almost emasculated him by tying him up and killing him and stuff uh, but their actual sexual relationship is quite sort of violent and rough and nasty. Per cortesia, mi dà le mondo rinascita. Sexy bell. Uh, le nouvel observateur. Oh, L'espresso. L'astrolabio. Quindici. Paragone. Observatore romano. Sex. Sexy man. Big sex. Old sex. Sex for Petri is never a loving thing. It's... No, well, it's not about that. It's not about romance. No, it's about power. Always about power and often economic power as well. Which Well, and I think here it's also what I was saying earlier about people playing a role. I think she's very much playing a role. I don't think she... And I think you said this during our episode. You didn't think that she really was actually all that into the same type of 
sadomasochistic fantasies that he seems to be into, but she's playing a part. Yeah, to get him to create art because she wants to sell it because he's a profitable commodity. And and it's that, that whole connection between beauty, art, luxury, economic power, social status that seems... It seems like in his films, you can't separate any of those things. They're all just bound up together. No, even in this one, I don't think we didn't talk about the ending in the last episode, but it all sort of comes down to this getting him to create art. And even when he completely loses his fucking mind and goes to a seance and then bashes Vanessa Redgrave over the head with a spade, you know, they still want to drag him out and get him creating paintings because he can make money. And it goes back to what we said in our first Petri episode here. Um about the plumber visiting the art people and those artists locked in that little place and being made to paint lines and make modern art. It's almost a reflection of that, again, coming back from his first films, which shows how important they are because they echo into all these later ones, even though they get nastier and more violent and more explicit. Um, No, definitely. And I think... While I totally agree with Nero that stylistically all his films are different, I think from the days are numbered on, there is this sort of, and actually even in Los Asino, there's there's this obsession with objects of art. And they even show up all over the place in investigations of a citizen above suspicion, which we'll talk about. They're always in little shots or people talking about art or discussing antiques or, you know, in every... I know he did, as as a person, he was a great admirer of... He sort of hated this bourgeois culture, but he, as a flip side of that, he was... Loved art. He loved art and culture, so he had a bit of a sort of conflict going there. But it's amazing how he brings it in because like everything else he does, it's not really in your face. Um, I did No, it's hit, so subtle. I did hit not so subtle. I did hear um, that Franco Nero had actually trained with some sort of American painter oh. here because he really wanted to get into his role. So he like followed his movements and stuff. And I just the thought of Franco Nero just being completely crazy and doing the whole method thing for this is just like I'm surprised oh, that it's Vanessa just so good. that Vanessa Redgrave didn't throttle him. So she <laughs> so as we talked about in the episode where we go into Quiet Place more fully they were together at the time and about i think about 10 years ago they they got married they got back together and officially got married but i sometimes have trouble imagining that relationship because while i think he is absolutely beautiful he doesn't seem like the most intelligent person on the oh, face of the earth whereas <laughs> Whereas she, but it's true (laughs) if you read interviews with him and I I love him, as I said last time, but it might be why I prefer John Maria Volante, but Vanessa Redgrave, on the other hand, was at the time, super political, very well read. And I, I just kind of can't imagine that dynamic, like her just kind of patting him on the cheek, like, yes, you go to those painting lessons. You throw yeah. yourself into this method. <laughs> but she <laughs> sort of is like that with him in this as well. I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like, you paint the shoes red. Yes, you do that. You have your little villa, Pat, Pat. I'm going to go and have drinks with the grown-ups. And uh... <laughs> It is exactly like that. Like, oh, you want me to put on this lingerie and read porn to you? Sure. Hold on. Give, <laughs> give me a second. <laughs> it does do, before we wrap up, though, I suppose the last thing we have to mention is it does do the man in an existential crisis it, probably better than any of his other films. I mean, the existential crisis here is on a, on an epic story scale it's a complete <laughs> not sort of... better than investigation well that's a different sort of existential crisis this is like a man who's <laughs> they're completely... both ma- they're both insane <laughs> they're both insane both in completely different ways both in absolutely brilliant ways i think you it's safe to say when petri gets people to be mad they're fucking raving in, it's like Schwabsky. <laughs> yeah, they don't do it. <laughs> they don't do any half measures here. No. It's like, you know, they're going to really go off the deep end. But he does, like, Franco Nero gets completely deconstructed and broken down and just, you know, made into some sort <laughs> of, like, lunatic by the end, some dribbling sort of... He's so great. <laughs> he's so good. Um, but yeah, I think that wraps up this episode because our next episode is ah! going to be the Jean Maria Volante <laughs> special edition. So, and just in case everyone is concerned, our notes there are hearts all around his name. There really are as well. <laughs> just, just so you will appreciate the level that's going to happen next time. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Daughters of Darkness, and tune back in three weeks for part three of our ongoing Elio Petri retrospective, where I continue to wax poetic about my love for John Maria Volante. And don't forget to check out the Diabolique site, where we're enthusiastically continuing our Italian cinema season with a wide variety of essays that cover everything from art house to genre films. And we've also done a lot of recent coverage on new films from Australia's MonsterFest. Kat, is there anything you'd like to mention? Yes, probably our biggest piece of news since we began this podcast, and that is that Diabolique magazine is coming back into print. Uh, We've got an issue planned for March 2017 that we've all been working really, really hard on, and it's dedicated, it's a themed issue, so it's dedicated to Japanese and Korean cult cinema. Um, And we would urge anybody that has enjoyed this podcast or enjoyed the work that we do over at Diabolique and the features and the articles and the reviews that we publish to please consider supporting us and pre-order a copy. You can check out the details on the main site or we'll put a link in the text to this podcast. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll see you in three weeks. And as always, let us know what you think of the show on Facebook or iTunes.